long time ago, I saw a, a bumper sticker or a sign or something, and as I was teaching this lesson, I was reminded of that and because it was very fitting for our lesson today. Here's what it said. Jesus is coming and boy is he mad. Indeed, the Bible affirms that he is coming back and I believe there's, there's going to be some things about this world that will both grieve him and anger his heart. Jesus will return just as the Bible has promised. And we as believers, as Christians, we look forward to it. But we also thank Him for His merciful patience because it gives us additional time to fulfill the call that has been given to us to reach the world. As much as it would probably be for some people that they would get saved and immediately God would just take them. And maybe that would be an ideal situation. The problem with that is it just doesn't leave anybody to evangelize the rest of the world. So the way that it works is we're saved and then we're called to go out and do a work for God. And because of His mercy and because of His patience, <clears throat> we have time to do just that. And that's what I want us to talk about today. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3-10. through 10. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. As Peter ends this second letter that he had written, he tells his audience that it was essential for them to understand that they were living in the last days. The phrase last days refers to the time span between the first time that Christ came and the next time that he will come back as we look at towards the rapture. So it's any time in that would be considered the last days. Peter used the term last days in 1 Peter 1 and 20 also. He was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. And that was to describe the time that they were living in right now. Peter was telling his the people that read this when he wrote it, we're living in the last days. These are the last times. Now that was thousands of years ago. So that's where he comes to in this next part. He also used the term back on the day of Pentecost. He, he quoted from the prophet Jeremiah in Acts 2 and 17. 
He said, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Now, he was quoting prophecy from Jeremiah, but he was also saying that this spirit that's being poured out, that's because we're in the last days. Paul used the phrase in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Think we're there. Without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. And when did he say all this takes place? In the last days. He predicted the decline of the condition of people's hearts. And truly we are seeing that right now. James also wrote about the last days. He said in the last days, in James 5 and 3, that during these last days that the rich would hoard their wealth. Think we're there? The writer of the book of Hebrews, most likely Paul, said that God's revelation of himself in Christ would take place in these last days. So we see that there was, it's not just Peter that wrote about these last days. And they were talking to the people of their day. The people in the first century, were, they were telling them, we are living in the last days. And that sounds good. We see that there were a lot of different writers that use that term. We are still using it today. And I believe the reason that Peter said there would be teachers of heresy or scoffers that would appear is because they looked around and said, you've been talking about this for four or five years now. Back then, you know, Peter, you've been saying this for all your life. And then here we are all this time later, we're still seeing it. We're still hearing it. And so we can see why there would be scoffers to that and why there would be people mocking and saying, you know, you told us, you told our fathers that. Still hasn't happened. And to that I would say, all that means is that we're just that much closer. It doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It just means that it's even closer to happening. And it's not because God is slack, as the Scripture says, but rather that He's merciful. And we'll get to that in just a second. Peter said that there would be those that would say, where, where is this coming you talked about? And they look around and they say, everything seems fine to us, and everything's going on as it has from the beginning of creation. You don't know what you're talking about. Peter had a rebuttal. And this is what he came back and he said, you guys seem to have forgotten the past. Let me give you a little history lesson here. And he went back and told them that the heavens and the earth, God spoke those into existence. He reminded them about the flood at the time of Noah, where God said, this is what's going to happen. It's going to rain. And it rained and destroyed everything except those that were in the ark. Maybe you forgot about that. Well, let me just tell you the way it's going to be. That same God that spoke everything we see into existence, that same God that said, let it rain, and it rained until the earth was covered with water, and there was only seven people that were saved, that same God is going to destroy this world again. 
That's exactly right. He said they were going to happen. They happened. And I'm telling you, he said this is going to happen, and it's going to happen too. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. It was kind of like the, um, it was kind of a version of what Bill Cosby used to, to say he told his kids, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. That's kind of what God was saying. I made this world and I'll take it out when I'm ready. Peter is the only New Testament writer to declare that this world would be destroyed by fire. It will happen, but it will happen in God's timing and only when he gives the command for it to happen. Peter referred to that day as this. He referred to it as a day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And in that group were the scoffers that were talking to Peter. You just wait. It's going to happen. Then Peter addressed the issue of, of what seemed like a, a, a long delay. And he said if it seemed like a long delay then, it is a long delay, but there's a reason for it. And today there's people that say the same thing. And I'm sure for those today, if it seemed like a long time, even in Peter's day, when they'd only been preaching it for a few years, but for today people feel the same way. But the answer that Peter gave them applies to us today. The first thing he did was he reminded them that God doesn't look at time the way we do. And that's important. That's an important thing. That God doesn't look at time like we do. Why? Because He's always existed and He always will. For there to be, we can't, can't really grasp that concept in our minds, I don't think. But if you always existed and always will, why does time matter? You don't have to be anywhere at any certain time. You've always been and you always will be. If you knew you were going to live forever, you're really not going to get in any hurry. Got nothing else to do. And so Peter broke it down to exactly like that. He said, with God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. It doesn't mean any more to him than a day. So soon is a relative term when you're talking to an eternal being. We've been waiting now for a thousand, few thousand years. But in God's timekeeping, it's just been a few days. So when will it be? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But secondly, in this particular instance, the schedule of events is influenced by God's patience and his desire to see as many people saved as possible. That's the other side of it. It's not his fault. He's doing us a favor. Read verse 9 again. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He's not dragging His feet like you think about dragging your feet. He is patient with you, wanting, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He's being nice to you. Stop complaining. He's giving you more time to get your friends and your families in and get them saved and to reach out to the rest of the world so that we can do what He's called us to do. He's not dragging his feet. But Peter made it clear that when the Lord does return, 
It will be as unexpected as a thief's break-in in the middle of the night. And Peter wasn't the only one to use this description. Matthew used it also in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. No one knows about that day, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but all, only the Father. And then skip down to verses 42 through 44. Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Basically the same thing Peter was saying. Paul wrote about a very similar wrote about it in a very similar way to the Thessalonican church in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 2. He said, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. We don't know when it is. We just know that it's going to be when we don't expect it. The fact that it will be at a time when people are not expecting it would describe any time from Peter's day till now. Because most people aren't expecting it even now. We've had thousands of years to proclaim the gospel. We've had thousands of years to tell the story that Jesus is going to return. And people still don't expect it. There are churches full of people this morning that don't expect it. Because we've heard it for so long that it's just another song. In the words of a song that Lanny Wolf wrote. And we have to we have to work against those feelings. We have to work against that complacency. Because that's what was happening even back in Peter's day. People were becoming complacent and saying, well, it hasn't happened yet, so are you really sure about this? That's right. <clears throat> it's exactly right. See, enough time had passed that there was probably one generation had, had gone since Jesus had been crucified. When you go back to the scripture we read where it said, our fathers, this could be Christians that were talking to him, saying, our fathers, back when you first started preaching this gospel, you told them the same thing. These aren't necessarily just heathens out on the street. It's very likely these are people that were in the church saying, you told, our, you told my dad the same thing. Hasn't happened. The fact is, it will be a time when people aren't expecting it. I don't know when it will be, and neither does anyone else, regardless of what they say. We read several scriptures here that just said, no man knows when that time will be. That's a, that's a real popular thing today based on a, a Mayan calendar. And um, supposedly the, the Mayans were the greatest timekeepers ever. And if you go back to some of the, the 
buildings that they built and the structures they built, supposedly everything points to 2012. I'm not going to say that it's not, but I'm going to say if it is, it isn't because they said it was, and it isn't because they knew it, because the Bible's clear that no one knows when it'll be. Just means they got lucky. And it could be a coincidence, that's right. As wicked as our society is now, how corrupt and how wicked do you think it will be when we as Christians are completely removed from it? And that's what says it's going to happen. Peter wrote about a time that he referred to as the day of the Lord. I'm not going to try to teach eschatology here and the, the study of the end time and, and go through about when everything's going to happen because I really don't know. I don't know exactly when this destruction with fire is going to take place in relation to the church being removed from this earth. I do feel that it will be at a time of final judgment after several other events that have been prophesied have come to pass. I believe it will be like the final thing that ever happens, and there's a lot of stuff that has to happen before that. But I do know this. When it does come to pass, it will be devastating for those unbelievers who are on this earth. Peter described it like this in verse 10 again. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. That is the final destruction. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in heat, just in case they didn't catch it two verses ago. Obviously, the question that Peter asked in verse 11 is a rhetorical question. What kind of people do you think you ought to be with these events that are coming? It's obvious that the answer... He didn't have to give it, but the answer was that need be living our lives as if Jesus could return any time. That was the answer. And he said, you ought to live holy and godly lives. This is the point of his question. If we really do believe that Jesus could return at any time, would, be, would we be living like we do? I think that's what he was saying. You've heard it, and you've heard it, and you heard it. You say you believe it, but let me ask you this. If you really believe it, then why are you living like you're living? Peter was saying that the very idea of a coming destruction should motivate us as believers to live God-honoring, sanctified lives set apart for godly rather than worldly purposes. Not to scare us, but to motivate us to live a godly life. If we know this is what the end will be, then that should be a motivation for us to live a godly life so that we don't have to worry about being here. And Peter goes on to answer his own question. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed is coming. Now, that speed is coming. Did anybody wonder about that at all, the, as we speed his coming? What does that mean? Can we speed up the return of Christ, or can we change God's timing? Exactly. It's exactly right. 
Jesus taught that no one but God knows the hour of Christ's return. However, when Jesus was here, he taught that the gospel would be preached to all nations prior to his return. That's what Matthew 24, 14 says. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the world, whole world as a testimony of all nations, and then the end will come. I don't know if we can change God's timing, but I do know that we have a mission to accomplish, and that mission is to spread the gospel to the whole world. Because Jesus said that all this gospel will be preached to the whole world, and then the end will come. So there are things that have to take place before that. That will have to be done before Christ returns. So as we do our part with spreading the gospel, we are cooperating with the plan that God has in place. And in that sense, we are bringing in the day of God and moving ever closer to the day that he comes back for his church. Just as Brother Ashley said, we're just looking forward to it. And as we do more and more, we are speeding towards that time. Because it could be any time. And that's not to scare us. Instead, it's to motivate us. It's to motivate us to, to, to reach out to a world that is lost. I've been doing a lot of studying, a lot of thinking recently because this trip that I'm taking in August, and one of the reasons that I'm going, somebody told me recently, why do you have to go to Africa to, to preach or teach to people? There's people all around. I said, for one thing, I was invited. And I wasn't invited to talk to them. So that would be one answer. The other thing is, when my friend Mundati invited me, he made it clear to me that they, there was a falling away in the churches in that country. The people look around and they see the events that are taking place in their lives and in their country and in the, in the world, and they've started becoming like these people. Where is this, where is this second coming you've told us about? Why isn't this taking place? Why hasn't it happened already? And when they don't see it coming, rather than it motivate them that it could be any time, they've just started falling away. And what I want to do is to go back and bring that, that, that feeling back. Give people a hope and, and tell them that there is hope. There is hope in this life. There is hope of a, of a better place. There is hope of another life. And we, all we have to do is just stay godly and stay holy until that time. It is coming. The entire world. I agree. The difference is this. And, and I've, I've thought about that question, why would you go all the way to Africa when there's people here that... One of the answers I gave was that one difference here is there's, there's about two churches on every corner. If somebody wants to go to church here, it's not hard to find one. If you can't find one, you can turn on your TV because it's sad, but in this country, the poorest of the poor people probably have cable. So you could turn on your TV and hear about 14 preachers any given time that you want. 
So what I'm saying is it is different. It is different. We have been inundated in this country with the gospel. It's there if we want to hear it. And it's not that I feel like I've been called to be some great missionary. I'm just going to do something I was asked to do. And I'm going to ask for y'all's help later on, but that's a different thing. <laughs> that wasn't why we talked about this this morning. <laughs> it worked, though. That's right. The second half of verse 12, Peter emphasized both the the fiery destruction of the, the cosmic system as we know it, the heavens and earth. He said they will be destroyed completely. The elements will melt with heat. This is a total destruction that he's talking about. And again, it wasn't to, dis it wasn't to scare people. I don't say it this morning to scare you. I say it so that we are motivated to live godly lives, so that we are motivated to live as if he could come any time. And that we would be motivated to reach out to the world that's around us, to our next-door neighbors. And again, I'll reiterate, it is not certain at what time all of these end-time events will take place. I personally feel that, that this destruction of with fire and everything is after the rapture of the church, after the tribulation, after the thousand years of peace that the Bible talks about in the book of Revelation. I think it's after all of that. I think this is the, the last hurrah. thing I do know, Peter referred to it two times in just a few verses in one letter. So I think he was very serious about it. I believe the point that Peter was making was not about fire and destruction. I believe what it was is to be prepared and have your heart right so that we don't have to worry about when it is. If we're prepared, it doesn't matter when all those things are taking place. If we are living the life that we need to live, if we are living the way that God has called us to live, it doesn't matter about the, the series of events that takes place at the end of the earth. You see, that's why I've never been, and I've taught from Revelation, but I've never been one of those people that just got lost in, in the book of Daniel and Revelation and, and prophecy and all that, because I don't plan on being here. It's like planning for a party you're not planning on going to. You're kind of wasting your time. I mean, it's there, but it's not there to scare us. It's not there for us to get lost in. It's there for one reason, and that's to motivate us to live our lives now the way that we should. In verse 13, Peter gives the promise of a, a replacement of what's been destroyed. He refers to it as a new heaven and a new earth. And he refers to these newly created places as the home of righteousness. And I would say this, I thought about that and I thought, well, since we have no righteousness within ourselves, then it would stand to reason that the only, only reason Peter referred to it as the home of righteousness is that God has to be present in it. And it has to be His righteousness that He's referring to. Second Peter 3 and 14. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, 
blameless and at peace with Him. This is what it's all about. He encourages the believers to earnestly endeavor to maintain pure lives, free from moral defects of any kind. I believe that what Peter had in mind as he was writing this was the, the idea of back in the Old Testament when they brought, they brought sacrifices to the priest. They had to be without spot or blemish. They had to be as perfect as they could be. And I think when Peter was writing this, he was thinking about that so that we would bring ourselves to Christ as perfect as we can possibly be, without spot, without blemish. And it's certainly in contrast, stark contrast, to the life that Peter was describing earlier about evil and the way that people were living their lives. Second Peter 3.15 Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Same thing he said before. It's not that he's dragging his feet. His patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Remember, Paul had written the same thing. He's saying God's not dragging his feet. He's not slack. His patience means salvation for some people. The longer he waits, the more people that will be saved. The term salvation or being saved is used in different ways throughout the Bible. If you go back to the Old Testament, it referred to any type of deliverance from danger, physical danger mainly. In Exodus 14.30, it talks of, of how the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. He didn't save them in the way we think as people being saved. He literally saved them from being killed. So in the Old Testament, it had a completely different meaning than saved as it does now. In other places, salvation refers to redemption. And that's what we generally think of today when we talk about being saved. It refers to the redemption that we have through Christ's atoning. Titus 2 and 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That's, that's salvation. This is the salvation. When we talk about salvation of the, the world and, and bringing people to salvation, this is what we're talking about. The grace of God. That mercy, that, that sacrifice of Jesus Christ that brings salvation and an offer of salvation to each of us. In Romans 8.1, Paul says that Christ frees us from eternal condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the salvation we're talking about. And we are just as much saved from death as the Israelites were when the Egyptians were after them. Except they were saved from an immediate death by a sword. We're saved from an eternal death through salvation in Christ. John 10 and 10. The, it's the wrong verse. Yes, that's right. I'm sorry. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The King James Version says that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. So the same salvation for the Egyptians that, that saved them from death and gave them life, salvation later on, it, it saves us from death and it gives us life that we can have more abundantly. An eternal life.
trite. Amen. But it's even more than, than the things we've talked about. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. These, this is what salvation is to us. In love, he has predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through this blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Salvation to us, what it means to us is that we are the recipients of blessings like redemption, life, forgiveness, grace, and becoming members of God's family. That's what salvation is to us. I want to look at something real quick. There are, as I was studying this week, I saw something that was interesting. There's three different aspects to salvation. And I never thought about this before, so just if you disagree with me, stay with me until I get finished and maybe you'll agree. Three different aspects of salvation. We were saved in the past when we believed the gospel. And it's interesting, Ephesians 2, verses 5 and 8 made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. There's another word there somewhere. Let's go back to that other verse. There. It is by grace that you have been saved. Have been. Remember that. Verse 8. For it is by grace that you have been saved, have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourself, it is for the gift of God. Titus 3, verses 5 through 8. He saved us, past tense, not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Christ, Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So all this refers back to the past when we were saved. So he saved us in the past, not by anything we did, but strictly through grace. And then we are being saved in the present. 1 Corinthians 1 and 18. For this message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And in 2 Corinthians 2 and 15, the spiritual man makes judgment about things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. 2 Corinthians. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. So we see that he, there's scripture that refers to when we were saved, now we are being saved, and then finally, when these lives are over and we receive our final salvation, we will be saved in the future. Read Romans 13 and 11. 
And do this, understanding the present time, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Which means it's there. We're going to get it. Paul said our salvation is nearer now, which means there is something to come. So we were saved, we are being saved, and we are going to be saved eternally. Peter also wrote about this in, in the scripture that we read a few weeks ago, 1 Peter 1 and 5 who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So we were saved, we are being saved, and the hope of eternal salvation when these lives are over. It's the same salvation brought to us through the same blood of Jesus Christ, but we can see that it's something that was always there, is here, and always will be. And when we are saved in those last days, that means we are saved for eternity. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory now, both now and forever. Amen. Peter was addressing his fellow Christians as his friends, and to these dear friends, he said, since you've already been warned, since I've told you what's going to happen, since you know these things, be on alert. Be on alert, why? So that you're not led astray by these people that are going to come along and tell you things that aren't true. These lawless men. And we need to take that same warning ourselves. We have been warned. We know what the consequences are. We know what is coming. We have received the promise of salvation, both past, present, and future. And that means we have to stay vigilant. We have to watch out for those that would try to destroy us spiritually because they will come. Peter said in his day, they will come. And in our day, I assure you, they are there. We stay watchful. How? By studying the Word of God so that we know what, it's, what it says. If we don't know what it says, how do we know if somebody's leading us astray? We stay watchful by staying full of the Spirit. John 16 and 13 says, When the Spirit comes, He will guide you into all truth. So we have to have the Spirit in us. So through the Word, through the Spirit, we know when we're being tried trying to be led astray. We stay watchful through prayer. When we are in prayer, when we spend time praying, that's the time that God can speak to us. It's, it's, it's no different than what Jesus told His disciples when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane before He was arrested. In Matthew 26 and 41, He said, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And that same warning applies to us today. Watch and pray. So we study the Word. We're led of the Spirit. And we watch and we pray so that we're not led astray. That's what Peter was telling the people then. And nothing has changed. If anything, we are 3,000 years closer than they were. 2,000 years. If it, was, if it was imperative for them then... How much more is it for us today? 
in addition to telling them to, to be watchful for those that would lead them astray, he also admonished them to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. It's not enough just to be on guard and we're to grow. We're to, we're to hear and we're to study and learn more. Why? Because when we do that, we're more useful in the kingdom. Peter ended this letter with a doxology or an expression of praise to God. He's, he ends it with, Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Or so be it. All these things I've said, let them be so. Peter made it clear that we're looking forward to our ultimate reward and, and not to become overly focused on this life. But there's something in that that we need to be careful of. There's an old phrase that warns of, of becoming so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. And we have to be careful of that. I believe that when Peter was, was speaking about a new heaven and a new earth, it was really meant not so much so that we walk around thinking about heaven and earth, but to put into context how we should live our lives today. He didn't say those things so that we would walk around ignoring everyday life and just thinking about heaven. No. But rather, it was to remind us that this life is at best temporary. And that we are looking forward to something that is greater than this life. But while we're here, we have a job to do. It was also to help us to, to understand the urgency of spreading the gospel. If we really believe those things are coming, if we really believe that, that there is this eternal reward that is incredible beyond words that we can even describe it, then why would we not want to go spread the gospel? If we believe, on the other hand, that there is a destruction coming to this world, then why would we not want to go share the gospel? So it wasn't that we think about those things all the time. It's our motivation to do the things we should be doing. And not have our head in heaven somewhere so that we're of no good down here. I believe his intentions were to cause us to concentrate less upon what heaven will be like than upon how that knowledge should affect how we live here. It's not so that we have these daydreams about heaven. And it's okay to do that as long as we're working here. It should cause us to have a drive to accomplish what God has called us to do in the short time that we're here on this earth. Peter prayed that we would be found by Christ at His return to be living the kind of life that He wants us to be. Amen. That's what He said. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. So what will we do with our knowledge? The first thing it should do with this knowledge, when we really say, okay, I believe you, I believe you, you've said it enough, I believe you. 
the first thing it should do is cause us to examine our lives to make sure that we are prepared for the return of Christ. That's the first thing. Have we repented as the Bible told us to do? Have we been baptized as the Bible has told us to do? Have we received the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit as the Bible has promised? If not, then before you leave here today, you need to do that. They're not just holy suggestions. They're holy commandments. So we need to do that. Besides, if you had something promised to you, like the Spirit of God, that is promised, as we read earlier, that will lead you and guide you in all truth, why would you not want that? And if you've done those things, then I would ask you, what are you doing to speed the return of Christ? Are we witnessing? Are we living a life that is an example to people who don't know Christ? Or have we become complacent in the way that life is going so that we really aren't real looking forward to the return of Christ? Yeah, it's not that bad. We don't know when he return, only that it would be like a thief in the night. So I'm going to close with these questions. Do we even believe that? If we knew for certain... If you knew for certain that Christ was returning exactly one year from today, would you change the way you're living? If so, then I would say we probably need to make some changes now. Because it very well could be, not in a year, not in a month, not in a week, it very possibly could be today. God bless you.